0: Yes, now to a new work which seeks to explain the recent deterioration in relations between Australia and China by assembling not merely the recent headlines, but by delving into a longer history, going back to World War II and possibly before. Australia's China Odyssey is penned by James Curran. He's a professor in modern history at the University of Sydney. He argues that our current relationship with China can, quotes, only be fully understood and appreciated against the hopes, dreams and aspirations that successive Australian governments held for ties with Beijing from the early 1970s. In other words, these are my words now, we've hurtled around in our attitudes from fear to discovery to high hopes to anger and more. The book traverses the extraordinary ups and downs between Canberra and Beijing from the 70s, especially when China first emerged from the Cold War through to the giddy 1980s and beyond to where that saga leads us now. And I'm pleased to welcome back James to the program. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Geraldine.
0: Uh, James, why, in your view, was this sort of book necessary?
1: Oh, I think uh, basically much of the past history of the Australia-China relationship had been pretty much obliterated by the fairly intense and, at times, emotional and, I guess, understandably emotional debate, which started to kick off once China, under Xi Jinping, became a lot more assertive and aggressive uh, in flexing its um, strategic muscles, and in of course in the debate that we had about foreign and political interference um, in this country, we seem to have forgotten almost entirely that there was, as you say, <clears throat> a roller coaster of a relationship with Beijing uh, well before Xi Jinping came to power, and which contained the full range of Australian responses and hopes and ambitions and disappointments. Um, This is altogether a brand new China, of course, and one like we haven't had to deal with before. Uh, So that's not to say that the past offers a kind of a, a, um, you know, a Panadol for the headaches that we've got now, Uh, but it's certainly, I think, important for policymakers and, and the debate generally to understand Uh, The rich and very complex and complicated history from which the uh, present has emerged.
0: Well, you actually do say that there's an asymmetry here. As the Mm. inheritors of a British imperial past with a lucky country mentality and a long history of sustained economic prosperity, it is not clear that Australia has been well placed to cope with this asymmetry, uh, which is quite considerable. Now, when did this strike you? I mean, when did it really hit you in your work that this Say symmetry existed.
1: Well, I think at various points. I mean, one, you know, one has to remember the the, the almost lightning speed with which, in the nineteen seventies, for example, um, <clears throat> Australia put aside a lot of those fears and phobias that it had of China in the nineteen sixties. I mean, we were among the best and most proficient red in the world during the 1960s more anti-China, in fact, than the Americans themselves, which is, I know, probably hard for some listeners to, to grasp. But, um, <clears throat> but uh, the the speed with which Australia then transformed its approach to China, um, I think, is part of the reason where this part of part of the story where this asymmetry crops up. Um, I mean, one of the one of the great quotes I think in this book is from. Uh, a former ambassador to China, Ross Garneau, uh, ambassador under Bob Hawke, who says at one point, um, now this is in the early 90s, Garneau says that we jumped, as a community, we jumped from our fears of an incomprehensible China, firstly to to China, a perception of it as a rambling socialist economy. Then when China began to modernise, he says, and we realised that it works by the same economic laws as others, some of us began to fear China's new strength as an economic and political superpower, right? So I think in other words, what I'm saying is it didn't take long for those fears to sort of be almost the handmaiden of the excitement about making a lot of money in China and developing our trade. Not far behind that excitement and that hope was always this kind of subterranean anxiety of, well, what happens when China does become, does reach the power Mm. economically and then militarily that we think it might
0: In fact, one of the conclusions, I think it's quite surprising uh, that you draw, uh, is to do with the shadow of the 1938 Munich appeasement issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you develop that, please? Why does that resonate now, in
1: your view? Oh, well, I mean, I think Munich has been applied by Western governments to almost every single um, major conflict around the world since the end of the Second World War. I mean, it is the... It is almost the standard framework through which how we approach a rising power, an aggressive power, uh, what we believe is an expansionist power. The idea is, you know, we've learnt the lesson from 1938. We don't allow, um, <clears throat> we don't allow the dictator or the ruler. Um, to to peel off even small pieces of territory for fear that they might become hungrier for more and that this will then spiral the world into a total military conflagration. And, um, you know, Munich has a very powerful hold uh, on strategic thought. Um, After all, those who criticised appeasement and Munich in the late 1930s were right. And it, it doesn't seem to matter, of course, that two of the major conflicts uh, in which Australia has been involved, and in which have been led by the United States in recent decades. I'm talking about Vietnam and Iraq. Also used uh, the Munich myth before they <clears throat> launched into war, uh, and they were both they were both strategic disasters. So I, I think it's I think it's um it is it is a natural inclination to reach for that, especially in in uh, uncertain circumstances and strategic fluidity and strategic threat. Whether or not it is always uh, the correct application of that myth, I think is open to debate.
0: I wonder what in your research really surprised you in terms of, because, you know, you, you range across a great characters, that the prime mm. ministers who had to deal with this, the foreign ministers. Um, was Were there a couple who really did surprise you with the nature of their responses, it, it, you know, as part of this asymmetry you're describing? <laughs>
1: Um, That's a very good question. The surprises. uh, Look, I think Fraser is always a surprise, isn't he? I mean, you couldn't get a more kind of classic cold warrior than Malcolm Fraser. I mean, this is someone who who declared Gough Whitlam a Manchurian candidate when Whitlam went to China in mid-1971 as Labor opposition leader. And then five years later, there is Malcolm Fraser in China proposing um, a quadrilateral pact. Uh, with the Chinese and the Americans and the Japanese to try and counter the Soviet Union um, and, and and making speeches saying, look, in our relations with other countries, ideology is not important. What counts is the national interest. So, Fraser was a great surprise to me. I think Rudd was also a surprise. I mean, here is someone who you could not be better prepared to manage China at this point. Um, and and two, two points about Rudd. I mean, here he is, Mandarin speaker, the first leader in the Western world, I think, to be elected to that office, speaking Mandarin. He'd been a diplomat in China. He had studied it at the ANU. Um, he has a tremendously sophisticated understanding of its, of its history and culture. And yet the management of that relationship under him was pretty disastrous for quite a time. I mean, we had the Annus Horribilis in 2009, uh, when there were a whole series of crises that sort of banked up, whether it be (coughs) Rio Tinto blocking the Chinelco bid, uh, Stern Hu's arrests, there was Rudd's criticism of of Chinese human rights issues, and they just piled up. Now, the second point I make about Rudd is this, that the relationship was stabilised uh, and the initiative for that did come from the Chinese side, but Rudd basically signed on to the Howard principles in stabilising the relationship. In other words, he endorsed John Howard's approach, which was to put commercial benefit and economic exchange at the top of the relationship. The other point, though, is that Rudd was quite prescient about the problems coming down the line. He did tell the Americans, uh, as WikiLeaks showed, but look, we're going to need to be prepared to use brute force if necessary. I'm a realist on China. Uh, I think they're going to become more aggressive and we need, we need to be able to plan for that. So I think, you know, that, I think that mixture of, of uh, approaches.
0: Well, I was just wondering what you did think about John Howard.
1: You're implying that he sort of sailed through the middle, really. Well, look, I, yeah, I mean, uh, John Howard had in many ways the China that you could only dream of, I think. I mean, there's no doubt that he approached that relationship um, after the initial, ironically enough, given what's happening at the moment, after the initial scrap that he had with the Chinese leadership over the Taiwan Straits crisis in 1996. He basically said to Jiang Zemin, the Chinese leader at the time, look, we're so different in culture, civilization, language, so different in size in terms of population, it's going to be very difficult for us To 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 sort of thread or 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 connect those bonds, but we can do business, and the Chinese agreed. I'm not sure they were quite happy about that kind of siphoning out of the cultural and civilizational dimension. I don't think they were. I think they were looking for something broader. I really do. And so, how it had a China that was that was still it was on its economic rise. It was looking for international acceptance. It was. Uh, applying, it was still abiding by Deng's dictum of hiding your strength and biding your time. It wasn't bearing its its nationalist teeth at this time. It wasn't making people uncomfortable. And Australia did very well. I mean, 526% is the, is the statistic by which trade grew with China during the Howard years. So, look, a deft management by Howard of both the US and China relationships, but he had a United States which, whilst initially uh, under George W. Bush, was going to compete with China, then got distracted by the Middle East and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so you didn't have a Washington either that was starting to look at Australia and think, hang on, why is our great ally in Canberra getting so close to China? Are we, are we comfortable with this? And, and that's the other part of the book, I think, Geraldine, is that so much of the China relationship throughout these years is refracted through the US alliance. Although uh, you
0: do say that Australian uh, leaders, except for maybe a fleeting moment under Tony Abbott, never really bought into the full ideological American story
1: about um, about China. Absolutely. No, it's very rare to find. And in fact, as you say, Abbott's really the only one. um, You don't find Australian prime ministers saying the more that China uh, economically liberalises, the more that political change will follow. They don't, because we don't look at we don't look at China like the Americans do, once did, uh, which is through that prism of uh, American exceptionalism, and that the Chinese just want to be like us. Now, America has let that go, and they let it go only in 2017 when they publicly disowned it um, through some key policymakers over there. But no, Australia didn't invest China with that kind of. Those nationalist imaginings, right? Um, so that's what's tr- so interesting about when Abbott did.
0: Uh, so, in terms of this new government coming mm. in and learning lessons, but trying to get beyond, well, you're all, you know, you imply a caricature mm. of, of mm. I say, sort of swings mm. and roundabouts. Yeah. How, how to how to stabilise it into something rational and wise?
1: That that is the challenge of our times, is it not? Um, look, they've certainly made a start. The Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, has spoken in precisely those terms of stabilising. I think the government um, has stopped shouting at China, but of course it still has. Um, it still has the uh, coercive uh, Chinese economic boot yep, on its neck. The restrictions in those, are still there. Those restrictions are still there and there are two Australians um, who are still uh, arbitrarily detained by mm. Chinese authorities. Those those, though they are kind of, they are kind of almost sort of inbuilt at the moment, inbuilt blockades against real progress being made. But I think this stabilisation process will be a long one. I think it will be full of ups and downs. In many ways, like the book shows, um, <clears throat> there will be highs and lows. There will be things that Australian governments will have to speak out strongly about uh, in terms of Chinese behaviour. Um, and the Chinese approach to Australia, and I mean, look, it's also it's also about. I mean, China appears to have forgotten a lot of the great assistance, important assistance uh, that Australia did give it down the modernisation path. Uh, there was a great deal of cooperation across many policy fields uh, throughout those heady times of the 80s and 90s. Uh, that appears to have been forgotten. Um, and, and so, you know, there there are problems on both sides with interpretation. I mean, if, if, if it's true, if it's true that the Chinese really did think they could peel Australia away from the US alliance, well, that only shows how little they have understood about Australian strategic culture, you know, mm-hmm. and how the need for a great power protector is hardwired into the kind of Australian mm. uh, strategic DNA. So...
0: All right. Well, look, James, thank you very much indeed for uh, doing all that, uh, delving into the archives for us. Do appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Geraldine. Thank you.
0: James Curran's Australia's China Odyssey, From Euphoria to Fear. It's a UNSW Press publication. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABCRN.